I remember from that space going, what would it take to actually walk into the shadows, walk into the things that I'm most afraid of, not do the behaviors that are protecting me? I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. I'm Torald. Sometimes I go by Torald Corrin. Torald is a diamond in the rough and one of the most soulful people I've ever met. He's an Australian born, uh, growing up in Adelaide and Sydney before moving over to New York as a teenager to chase his dream of music. He's toured with Coldplay, Bon Jovi, Pink and Rod Stewart. Um, kind of roaming international stages and performing in front of sold-out stadiums for a good chunk of his life. He's lived a true rock star story uh, to a degree that you and I probably will never know. What very few people saw throughout this time was the insidious anxiety and obsessive-compulsive disorder that plagued his life, driving him into chapters of psychosis and suicidal ideation at several points in his life. After some tear-jerking life experiences that uh, he shares some details of in this episode, Thorold now has pivoted towards something far more meaningful to his true purpose in life, which is helping people with uh, their own mental health in a lot of ways through what, through what he knows best, which is music. Together with his very talented brother Isaac, they established the Songwriter's Journey to reconnect people to their, to their lost selves and to provide a safe yet creative place to, to heal uh, trauma. I met Torald in New York a few years ago when I attended a lecture around art and mental health and I saw what looked like my doppelganger on stage um, pick up a guitar and play a song that literally melted the entire room into silence. And uh, after he did that, he, he spoke, and I heard this Australian accent recount stories of his life with OCD, and then I thought for sure someone was punking me, because there's no way that someone who looked, sounded, and went through such similar things to me could be in the same room. And so again, um, I have a habit of doing this. I, I ran up to him on uh, on stage after he'd finished talking, and I introduced myself and basically forced him to hang out with me. And then a week later, I was a guest at his at his house. I ended up sleeping under his roof in Ojai in California. And we just uh, hung out for some days talking and kind of formed a friendship that feels more like a brotherhood uh, than anything else. Definitely something special connecting with him and his journey and all the people that have been on that with him. We've remained really close, and in this episode, you'll start to hear why I feel so blessed to have him in my life, and we talk about the effects of fame and the kind of the ideation of the broken artist. Torald uh, takes us through some of his experiences with the bizarre and intrusive world of OCD and how a shooting star, of all things, um, in the sky was something that changed the trajectory of his life forever, which is a, a really kind of hair on the back of your neck, standing up type of story. I actually share a weird story about how I ate a picture of a devil to kind of overcome my fear of being possessed, which 
out of context actually sounds really weird when I'm, uh, I'm saying it out loud. That's because it is really weird, um, but that's why we're here. So strap in for that one. More than anything, I hope you enjoy listening to someone who is just a really good person um, through and through. His genuine energy will be medicine in and of itself. Uh, there's moderate OCD references in terms of trigger warnings for this episode. Um, so if you have that, remember, as always, go slow, go strong, one moment at a time. We're all on the journey. Brother, welcome, Mr. Torald Corrin. Good to have you here. Such a pleasure to be here with you, Mitch. It's so funny that it took us three days and like four hours of technical issues. Two guys with OCD trying to get a simple soundtrack recording is just like the best way to kick this thing off. <laughs> totally. Three days to charm. Yes. But we are, we are here now and I'm so, so excited to, to talk to you. You know, I was thinking the last time I saw you, I was actually eating a devil drawn by a murderer on paper. Yes. How do we even break into explaining how we got there? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a weird story. And so I'll put some context around it, but it is such a good way to, um, to sort of articulate the friendship and relationship that we have built from our shared pain, I guess. So as both of us who's experienced obsessive compulsive disorder our whole life, for the most part, I see it as an illness where you think something's wrong with you, or I guess more, there's something bad inside of you. And every type of OCD form that I can see, whether it's religious, cleaning, sexual or otherwise, you're trying to dispel a, a guilt or there's something evil inside of me. And as a kid, I used to have that feeling by, you know, five, six, seven years old, I used to think that you know, if I had a bad thought or a bad feeling, and I'm saying bad in inverted commas, that that made me possessed, literally possessed. And I, I didn't even want to be in my own body because I thought that it was an evil place to be. And, you know, the context of that is being brought up at a heavily religious school, incredibly God-fearing. Um, so I kind of thought that he was monitoring my thoughts as a young kid. And so the devil and horns was always this symbol of what I feared, kind of like my shadow self, everything I feared that might be living dormant with inside of me. And it was funny when, when we connected um, so quickly and I was sitting at your studio in Ojai, California, and I said, you know, there's something, there's something that I fear inside myself. And you said, you got to attack this stuff head on. And, it, you know, exposing myself to painful situations has, has been something I've, I've got to deal with. But this was a new exposure for me. And you literally said, well, if you're scared of being evil, then consume the evil and I'll be here with you. And you'd done this before, right? You'd eaten the devil before. Yes, I have, actually. Yes. What was the guy's name who drew it? I've forgotten his name off the top of my head. He's a very famous serial killer. Um, who who was, became renowned for drawing pictures of Satan. And I, I came across, oh, Ricky Ramirez, I think is his name, at San Quentin up in the Bay Area. And um, I just came across this spike or trigger. And for anyone who doesn't know what that means, it just literally in the OCD world, you know, things trigger or spike to such a magnitude that your whole body on a physical, mental, or emotional level 
um, just kind of goes off the Richter scale. And of course, it's what everyone's experienced, but it's just so heightened because it's so inflamed and looking for triggers to go off. So for whatever reason, the depths of this story is I ended up in, an, in uh, the Museum of Death, which is in Los Angeles, and I did it as an exposure uh, and I found this picture and I'll, I'll probably, I could go further into the detail, but I found this picture. And it was the scariest thing in the whole museum. Um, most people would definitely not agree with me because there was some really scary things in there. But for some reason, my OCD at the time, I saw the depth of how scary this particular man drawing this particular picture was to me. Uh, and I just couldn't let it go. So in the weeks that followed, I finally came up with uh, the idea uh, with some help to literally eat a printed out picture of it. And you and I did the same exposure after I told you, told you all about it. You had the courage <laughs> to eat the same picture. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, paper doesn't taste as good as it looks. <laughs> I've never properly thanked you for that because as strange as it sounds, and I'm sure many listeners now are like, these guys are off their heads and pro- we probably are. Um, but there is something about you know, making something that's so conceptual and so not in the real world exist tangibly and then, and then change your relationship to it. And by, by me physically consuming that, but the important part is having someone beside me to support me through that exposure allowed me to create a whole new memory and a whole new relationship to what it meant to be evil and then sit with the uncertain feelings of, you know, what if, what if this does trigger something and blah, blah, blah. And, and now, you know, I'm so much more calm about that area of my life and integrated into myself. So thank you for that, brother. You're so welcome. It's, it's such a pleasure to hear back from that time. We had such a great two-day deep dive together here in Ojai and it was so, so amazing meeting you at Columbia and I'm honored to be one of your first guests uh, on this podcast. For sure. And, and on that, you are um, an unassumingly uh, well, uh, I guess, credentialed is that a word um guest uh maybe uh, you're a name that isn't in the mainstream but once you googled it's um it becomes very obvious uh your career speaks for itself so you know signed to interscope and universal record touring with coldplay pink and rod stewart i have to ask are they awesome in real life like can you tell us a story about any of those three that we wouldn't know oh yeah absolutely well they're all they're all awesome actually um Rod, we got to do a whole tour for a whole summer actually with Rod and he he was just, he was like an old school rock star, like still gets police escorts um, to, the, to the arena, always kicking soccer balls, always sort of hitting people with soccer balls in the hallway backstage. And uh, just, just a really, somewhere between a famous rock star and just a local dude you'd have a beer with down the pub. Just such a classic man. Um, Pink is amazing. She's the consummate performer, one of the best of all time that's alive today for sure. And just watching her for 40 shows as we toured through Australia, especially, we got to see, you know, how amazing she is to all of the people and how focused she is. She's an incredibly powerful uh, person and, you know, quite, quite a creative mind, you know, and I could see, you know, being someone in, in the behavioral world that, you know, she's dealing with a lot and just to be able to, maintain what she does is pretty outstanding. Um, and the only thing I'd say about Coldplay, they may be the nicest boys I've ever met, just like regular dudes, you know, and each of those people um, spoke volumes. We, we were lucky enough to not really be around 
the ugly side or the diva side of the uh, music industry when we were doing those big tours. You might have got lucky there. Was it? Was there ever a time where you felt that your mental health and your career in music were at odds? Did it ever drive you to a dark place? Absolutely. The classic rock star story didn't happen to me. I believe before uh, I had passed through what I call the narrow keyhole or or stepped into you know, really my recovery, which was about the second bottom that I hit when I was about 30 years old. If I had become really successful when I was about 23 to 25 or 6, I, I have a, a sense like I wouldn't have survived. And, and I'm actually very passionate about really starting a conversation on, on the idea that we don't have to celebrate mentally ill rock stars, um, but we can celebrate them receiving the kind of help and the kind of health and the kind of support through real sharing, through real stories, rather than the kind of celebrating that kind of rise and fall of the famous person. And I, I really do believe it's not a mystery that a lot of famous people that, that have mental health issues do, do die because there's so much pressure on them maintaining their success for others around them. And, uh, not too dissimilar than even a famous OCD story like Howard Hughes, money, power, and fame accidentally protects them from getting the kind of help that they would need. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of speaking up about that. And, you know, of course, I, I don't have the clout of uh, a big celebrity to say I live that tale, but I have a real strong sense that if I had climbed into the success even that I had in my career so far before I had really gotten the help I needed, um, I wouldn't have even survived the success I have had so far either. It's, it's interesting you talk about these, these moments, um, kind of like coming to Jesus moments where you're literally at rock bottom. There's a couple that you've mentioned. Take me back to, to that time where in your early 20s, I guess your, your first real struggle why do you think that it would have killed you if you were sort of at the stage in your career that you wanted to be and and where were you at that time? Well, I was in New York City. We were very much like an up-and-coming rock band at the time. It was about 2005. You know, winning New York City local band competitions and actually you know, won a competition open for Bon Jovi, of all things. Um, such a strange mashup. But we were really a New York band, two Australian brothers in New York City. I think right at that time, if we had catapulted to the killer's level, I think that kind of money and power and fame would have destabilized how, how distorted my mind was and how, and how sort of not okay I was with my own thoughts and feelings and sensations. And you know, everyone around me, even in that time, was trying to get me to go, you know, just get over it, just, you know, get on with it, you know, there's this music career in front of you. It's going well. If you had added a platinum selling record and big theaters and arenas and stuff, I think that that kind of energy behind and momentum behind a career at the same time would have probably sent me over the edge. It's just a sense I had that I've had for quite a few years now looking back on that time. And I think what happens with, a lot of artists and actors when they don't have mental health help 
they don't have conversations out there. They're certainly not wearing their stories on their sleeve is that they, they, they get put under a, a tremendous amount of pressure to act normal, to, to keep up with appearances, to perform, to present how great it is to be them. And, you know, I've loved so far hearing your story of how that felt being in the, in the situation that you're in with your success, that there's such, such demand to keep up appearances, even for someone who has their mental health, that with someone who's struggling with their mental health, uh, it, it becomes such a big gap and it becomes more and more isolating. So I think I felt already alienated and isolated enough. On the other side, we, we celebrate when an actor or a lead singer or something like that is kind of tormented. It makes great art. Uh, that torment can be expressed through art, but when we celebrate someone as tormented, it's like we're watching a fiction film of a character. And I, I even experienced that myself, that somewhere I loved to express how tormented I was and I had fans that loved how tormented I was. And it wasn't that anyone had ill intentions. It was just that it was, it was cool to be tormented. And I really got to witness that quite closely around the Amy Winehouse rise because she was around and really killing it at South by Southwest in Texas where we, we were and um, really watched her come up. And, and I remember the rumors at South by Southwest this one year was, oh, you've got to go to an Amy show. You've got to see how effed up she is. And that was the celebration. The celebration was how she she was in the midst of a train wreck. Looking back on that, it's a it's a beautiful example of someone who didn't get the kind of care through sharing, through understanding that she needed. Mm, it's it is such an important point that you make around how we put a lens on expression and torment, and what part of it we're celebrating. Is it that the person's in pain, or is it what the pain's creating? And I found it really curious the way you framed like it was almost a blessing to not make it and that you were now, you know, looking back on it with hindsight, you can sort of say, oh, that's why things didn't go the way they did at the time. And now I've ended up in a place where I'm helping people every day, you know, have a, have a whole body instrument and, and heal themselves through music. The acting point in particular, I find relates a lot to my own life and the reason Heart on My Sleeve exists because it's often the tension between the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we tell the world that creates more pain than our actual illness. Uh, and it's by integrating those two things and, and having the courage to lead a more authentic life that we alleviate a lot of the pain. You are someone who has experienced a lot of pain in your life. For those who have never had OCD, what were you feeling at the time, you know, at, at your lowest moments? Can you give us some really tactical examples of some thoughts or some sensations that you were struggling with? I'll even just quickly go back to the beginning because it was, it was early 90s Australia. I was 12 and it, it popped its, its head out after my, my mother and father divorced. My mother came back after a trip and had a change of heart, almost like someone had possessed her and she decided she didn't want to stay in our family. And so it was quite a shocking uh, psychic break, if you will. And, you know, clearly I had a proclivity and a genetic disposition in some capacity, but it was what my body did. And it first started by just, I started hearing voices. It wasn't clear words. It was just a trigger to do something that might keep me safe. So it started with touching trees, 
like I would touch a tree 10 times because a voice in my head would say, do that so your dad doesn't die in a car crash because he's 10 minutes late from coming home. And then it started with these wild prayers um, where they'd start with 10 minutes and then I'd add on sentences and it became like this 30-minute thing. And then each night I'd fall asleep before I finished it and then I'd get backlogged and I was like 25, 30-minute prayers behind or touching wood. I'd touch wood for 15 minutes straight each night before I went to bed just to catch up on all the wood I didn't touch for any potential bad thoughts that I had. So it moved quite quickly into magical thinking at a really early age. But it wasn't until 23 that I had a falling out with a friend that was like a perfect storm for whatever reason to my system. And as a young adult, I went all the way into adult onset OCD. My whole mode of operation was something went wrong. I feel judged. I feel cursed. What if that happened? What if he judged me? And what if that is negatively contaminating? And it was a very threatening fallout, to be honest. What I did with it was I started praying. I started uh, salting corners of rooms. I started taking all these great, you know, almost alternative healing uh, modalities that I that I was kind of playing with. And I, and I took them over the edge. I went from an hour to four hours a day of ritualizing really quickly. And then within a two-year period, I started to see things. I started to leave reality entirely. I started to, when I'd have a trigger, I could feel, uh, almost feel shadows, feel ghosts. I became afraid of anything that might be spirits or ghosts. Um, I became, if I'd sit on a chair and thought the wrong thought, I'd be sitting on that thought, so I'd have to clean my body. And so then at about two years in, when I was about 25, I, I'd given myself a version of Tourette syndrome. I was doing this on stage. There's still videos of me doing it. I'd put on a guitar and I'd have to take the guitar off and on. And I'd pretend like the chord was stuck, but I'd often, even on stage, do take things off and on and I'd be flicking energy off my hands. And by the time I hit my first bottle, I was 27. And um, I was living in a pool house in the middle of recording a record and it was the perfect storm for some someone with OCD because I was left alone with no schedule uh, with no structure living on money from an investor who who's a patron of the arts with no timetable and no need to finish a record and it was the perfect environment for for OCD to take over and I say this to a lot of people I work with now in the behavioral world that with someone with OCD uh, has to be engaged uh, and responsible and accountable to others and, and have something to turn up to. And I had the opposite of that. And I got more and more crazy and, and one night came, you know, as close as I ever have come to the fascination with what if I just, you know, took myself out. And it was this desire to cut out the OCD from my body. I remember feeling like, okay, well, that's as low as I want to let myself go. So... I reached out the next morning to my mom and I finally said, I, I need help. And I'm a 27 year old man, but I need help. And so I, I called my dad and I said the same thing. And my family mobilized and everyone ended up in LA and I found this incredible intensive program at UCLA, uh, Westwood Anxiety Institute. And we luckily had the funding and I had the kind of family that, that could mobilize. And I got the first round of help that I needed 
I did about six weeks of an intensive program and I, I went full steam ahead. I hit the OCD where it lived as best I could. It was petrifying. But it gave me the, at least the ground level to, to get my life back. Um, it was not the ultimate bottom that I would hit and I would fully relapse a few years later. But that's really where I, I hit my first bottom and, and where I really did truly ask for the right kind of help for the first time. And that was about 2009. Wow. There's a lot there. Um, and I appreciate you, you sharing all of that. And, you know, we're going to unpack that a little bit more. But for a lot of people out there, I think this might be the first time they've ever heard OCD talked about in this way. I think the media presents, um, and it's almost like, oh, that's my OCD when you straighten a piece of paper or, you know, there's a fridge magnet out of line. But the actual clinical diagnosis in its extreme is, is one of the most debilitating and distressing illnesses around because it feels like you're trapped in your own mind and you don't know why. Studies have shown that, you know, there, there is a link to a lack of serotonin in the brain. So it's almost like a diabetic not having enough insulin and wondering why they're, they're fainting or going through the cycles that they do. And we, we've recently seen people speak up about this. We've got a guy locally, um, Osher Gunsberg, who's quite a big media personality, come out and talk about his psychic break with, with OCD. And as someone who's experienced it myself, I know just how troubling it can be. But what's so interesting is that a lot of it can be hidden, even though that it's so explicit. You know, you were talking about on stage playing with your guitar. And when you talk to you, you have your stuff so together. Um, you're such a genuine gentleman. You're a good looking dude. You have a, a wife and a beautiful child and one to come. Congratulations again for that. And so it is just so hard to wrap your head around how one human being can have such a diverse internal world going on. Ha has music been something that has allowed you to escape that feeling or is, it, or is it something that has allowed it to come together more? Oh, that's a great question. I, I would say that music was a valve. Music was, I, I would say music saved me in a way because I had a steam valve, if you will. Um, I could, I could, I could vent. I, I would always come back when I would enter a song in a performance or a show. It did not heal me. I wouldn't say music healed me at all. I think it was, it was an opportunity to, to not disappear. And uh, that's huge, you know, because you really look at anything from, OCD to any other mental health issue or even, you know, the elderly disappearing. Um, a lot of it's about staying present and in life you know, with other humans. And, and I think music gave me that connection when I felt disconnected and absent from my body in every other way. Music would also bring me back to my body. And with OCD, if you look at any symptom that anyone with OCD has that, that they're generally really out of their body, their, their body, they're quite pale and uh, absent feeling. And uh, there's not a lot of presence. There's not a lot of physical connection with themselves. So it would help me do that. And for, for a few hours after a show, I would, I would feel good. 
unless, of course, I got triggered at the show, which would happen, but I would feel myself again. And it would often disappear quite quickly after that. But I would say there's plenty of pictures that, that depict how bad I was when I was 24, 25 to 27. Those years, um, I, I think I looked like I felt. There's a couple of pictures I found recently where I, I guess I looked a bit like a, a heroin addict or you know rock and roll band dude that's been partying. But the truth is, I really wasn't partying. It was it was all the it was all the drugs in my mind, and it took its toll. It took its toll on my belly. It took it it, it took its toll on my um, on on aging me. You know, feeling that anxious and going that far deep into it. I think really took it took an early toll on my twenties, and I've been you know earning back my youth ever since I'm 37 now, but, uh, I'm pretty impressed with my turnaround. <laughs> yeah. And, and I do, I do really want to talk about that turnaround because it is more interesting, I think, than, than what's happened in your past, your ability to have such an amazingly stable life now, considering your background. And I totally resonate with what you are saying there about the anxiety taking its toll on your body. You've said a lot of helpful things to me, but one of the most um, insightful is when we were sitting next to each other and you go, where are you right now? I said, what the fuck, dude, I'm here. And you said, are you behind your eyes? And it was the first time anyone's asked me, was I behind my eyes? In that moment, I sort of realized I'm not like I'm actually slightly in front of my face at all times, slightly disassociated, slightly not willing to feel what's actually going on inside my body. And to be honest, people used to talk about this, like feeling the body. And I'm like, dude, that's for the yogis and all that stuff. But, you know, after finishing my, my masters, I started to realize it's, it's really not lip service. It's not an aesthetic thing. An emotion cannot exist without a cellular activity happening in your physical schema, which means all emotion is a body-based thing. And the less we can build a relationship with that emotion, the less we have an ability to work on it or, you know, change it. And so, you know, just that one sentence has has made me check myself more when I whenever I feel like I'm anxious or stressed or whatever, I'm like, get behind your eyes. And it really does bring me back in and go, okay, reset, get back home. That's fantastic to hear. Yeah. And, and just the, I love that you, you took that one specific phrase look how physically and simple and tactile that kind of question is. Cause it's an experience to be behind your eyes is to have that experience, you know, to be, in this body that you have been given to be in. It's not conceptual. It's like, what's it feel like to have eyes to be behind? That's an experience you can place yourself back in. And as soon as you place yourself back in that place, you return to the the powerful simplicity of being home in your body, which being home in your body is where the the OCD or other anxieties that anyone feel, uh, it's the first thing to go. And that disassociation is not just for, you know, critical mental health issues. That's for most people walking around, I would hazard a guess and say most people aren't in their body like they could be. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, 
you, I remember you actually challenged me once uh, one more and, and you said, when you're behind your eyes, do you feel like you can lock yourself in here? Not lock, that's a bad word. I, I think you asked me to imagine that my skin became steel, I think, and that once I was behind my eyes to actually imagine that the skin and, and your whole body is being contained within a solid structure. And I was like, I can't do that. Like I need to feel porous. I need to feel an escape. But it was an amazing exercise, one that I still sometimes do to to sit with the emotions that come up when I do feel like this is home base and I need to accept that. And it has allowed me again to improve my potential. Mm. Yeah, actually what you're describing came from a game that is fundamental in what I coach and it's by far the biggest gift that was ever given to me as a as a way of being from from a teacher of mine and a healer that I worked with through many years who, who I, I totally credit with helping me um, along with my own behavior and all of the work that I've put in, helping me directly with getting to where I am. It's a, a man named Jay Atacama. He's a ninth generation healer in New York City. And uh, he stuck by my side and uh, showed me a handful of different things and also treated me in alternative healing as well as other medicine. He, he was incredible. And he showed me this one game, but I've made it my own. And it's quite simply returning to yourself like you are a planet. To be home in your body, uh, that instead of steel, it's a crust, like your environment, your geography. And it's quite simply when you allow yourself to sink back and invite yourself back into this body that you've been gifted to be in. And just allow yourself to relax behind and inside it. So again, to be behind your eyes, to what's it feel like to have shoulders? And have a belly. What's it feel like to allow yourself to inhale and experience what inhaling feels like? And also, last but not least, the exhale, feeling that that exhale is also. But around that experience of being home in your body, that we can it's okay if we feel that firmness of the instrument that we've been given. So Jay used the word crust. Just like if you're this incredible acoustic guitar, you wouldn't want it to be soft and pliable. So it's literally imagining 360 degrees around you, experiencing your skin firming. And that firmness of your skin is what I believe nature intended you to feel, to not feel defensive or protected, but naturally home in this body, this planetary body you've been given to be in. And then last but not least is really your atmosphere that just like planet earth has this incredible electromagnetic field. And we also as human beings, when we allow ourselves to be home in our body, have that electromagnetic field. And all we have to do is allow it to be up and that buoyancy creates the environment for life to thrive. So that simple game gave me the courage to feel uncomfortable again and not to be escaping and racing out of my own body and being totally up in my head. The energy being up, again, um, for a long time, this was regarded as sort of um, hippie speak, but it, it, it is a very scientific thing where we know through our own day-to-day living that feeling drives everything. When someone says to you, do you want to go hang out with Sam tomorrow? You're going to answer yes or no in 
half a second, which isn't enough time for you to process. What did I do with Sam last? What are we actually going to go do today? Blah, blah, blah. Your body is retrieving implicit information from the side of the brain that doesn't understand language. And it's giving you a response that says, how do I feel when I'm around Sam? There's a lot of, of psychology coming at, out now, which is how do we become aware of the energy that we are presenting to the world? Because it's going to attract the same energy back, but it's also going to affect the people who we hang out with. You know, are we giving energy when we're around other people without, just by picturing them in our mind, do we feel whole and uplifted and safe or do we feel, uh, I kind of don't want to hang around them. They're projecting, they're vomiting out this toxicity and these insecurities Now, that's not a reason not to hang out with someone because those people would benefit the most from having someone around them who can sit with them and allow them to to come back and, and stop vomiting that out. But that needs to be intentional. Your energy management is a big thing. Now, I also want to touch on a point that you said around, you know, what do my shoulders feel like? What does it feel like to breathe? For those who aren't familiar with, with this type of language, and maybe there's some you know, Aussie blokes out there being like, how the hell do, is that going to solve me feeling less depressed having a relationship with my left shoulder? And so I just want to break that logic down. So essentially, again, from a psychological and anatomical perspective, if emotions only live in the body and self-awareness is the key to unlocking our ability to to cope with distress because it rewires the brain to allow us to build uh, new and healthy thought patterns. Then it is an awareness of the emotion within inside the body, which is our quickest way to change something. Most of the time, the barrier to someone getting better is denial and defense. They serve a very important function, which is to keep us sane. If we have all these conceptions in our mind about who we are and how the world should be from childbirth and something comes in and threatens that, our psyche does a job to make us believe that for whatever reason that's not true or we can rationalize why we are the way that we are. But ultimately, it's a gradual supportive ability to accept where we are and and what we're going through, which is going to be the breakthrough to allowing us to change a pattern of how we're treating ourselves or how we're treating other people. And so if you go all the way back to it, it is a higher recognition or a higher awareness of what we are actually feeling and our ability to recognize and then make sense of it, which in turn allows us to then action it. So that left shoulder is starting a technique or a, or a habit in the brain, which is building up our emotional resonance, which will then allow us to become more present in our relationships and in ourself and eventually stop hurting as much as we do. So just wanted to give sort of that explanation behind what you were saying, because it's a really important point. That's fantastic. And I, I'd like to jump in and just tell a quick story. I remember at my worst, I would call someone who I'd let know I was freaking out. And uh, she's a dear friend of mine. And she would say to me, I'd be freaking out, you know, totally anxious, not sure what to do. It'd be 3 p.m. in the afternoon. She'd be like, hey, 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 Thor, have you, have you gone outside today? I'd be like, no. She's like, have you eaten? Have you drunk any water? And I'd be like, well, yeah, but my first feeling was like, why are you asking me these irrelevant 
questions when I'm, I'm it's World War II inside my body when I'm this depressed, when I'm this anxious. And she was spot on that I was so far out in the stratosphere of my anxiety, that I was so far out in distortions of reality that she was just intuitively saying, hey, go do the basic things like eat well, drink, go for a walk, literally invite yourself back in your body, feel your shoulders, come back behind your eyes. All of these basic foundational things to life that you do when you feel good and there's plenty reason to do the things that are simple that make you feel good in moments of mental despair and anxiety. So it's the, some of those simple foundational things that we don't want to do, but are best to do in those moments for us. Yeah. And that goes back to a really fundamental concept, which is if we trust that our body does live in a state of homeostasis, which is effectively, it wants to be in positive health. It wants to survive. It wants to thrive. Our inbuilt instincts keep us alive. That means that it's it's always at every moment throughout the day telling us how do we get back to a state of well-being? It's just often we're too busy or too noisy to hear it. And so the example you used is awesome, which is I'm so in my head that I'm not listening to the fundamental things where my body's saying, eat something. I promise you it'll help us just a little bit get towards closer to feeling better. It's okay for us to not have that awareness, but having a willingness to be open to what we might be missing or what, what we might be doing wrong is, in my opinion, the, the biggest predictor to whether someone's going to get better or feel better. It's am I willing to face reality? Am I willing to move past the way that I've done things and maybe change them without judging the shit out of myself? In my experience, that often comes through someone you can relate to or someone that you can trust basically saying, I've got you. And it's their lack of judgment, which gives you permission to stop judging yourself. You know, there's a few people you've mentioned so far in your story, but I want to pick up on the guy you mentioned, Jay. Jay from New York, who who was a bit of a mentor, a bit of a guide that you met at the right time, who I know you've accredited to a lot of your well-being. Tell me about, Jay, your relationship with him and, and why it was the last time I saw you that you were drinking tiny doses of, of magic water. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting story, our, our friendship, because I met him at a low point and we immediately connected. But the truth is I, for the first handful of years knowing him, used him from my OCD. Now, did he help me? Yes, but it wasn't until I passed through what I call my little narrow keyhole of trust that he really could help me. And I'll I'll totally explain what I mean. But when I first met him, I was looking for a savior from the scariness of my own thoughts. And I really wanted someone to give me reassurance that I was okay. Like I said, I was really, one of my big obsessions was that I wasn't okay that something was wrong with me and I had to fix it. So that could be from something physical. You know, I've met a lot of people with OCD that have, you know, they, they go on 17 AIDS tests because there's always a a possibility that the the person miss, mistested. So 
I was constantly looking to see what was wrong with me and it was mostly on an energetic level. So, you know, I, I thought I had ghosts on me. I know it's really far-fetched, but I thought that there was energy I had to clear from my body. But it also could be I thought there was relationships I had to clear up because someone might be angry at me from the past. So I was, I was always like looking at how I can clear things up with people, which was a nightmare in itself. When I met Jay, not only was he amazingly helpful and I started to feel better with his, his work, but I was also investing in trying to get his reassurance. So the sickness of OCD was using him to, to take full responsibility. I think for a number of years, I kind of went round in circles with his healing help and his teachings because what I really ultimately put before getting well was the sickness at that time that I somewhere, I guess, wasn't ready to fully be well. And maybe I knew it, but I didn't know how to snap out of it. And so I think for a number of years, I got better, but not fully. So, so basically what occurred was I, I went and did a a self-help weekend and I won't, I won't name what it was, but it's quite a famous one. I had plateaued in my health. Let's say that I was somewhat of a functional OCD person at the time. I'd say I was moderately not well, maybe an hour or two a day obsessing about things. Um, A lot of things would trigger me. I'd have a bad two days here and there. Um, I'd done that intensive program in LA two years back and I had a quote unquote somewhat functional life. But I did this weekend. It was all about digging up, getting clear, seeing that you were a your mind made meaning out of everything and that you could just clear things up with integrity, blah, blah, blah. And it was fantastic. I had a ball, except unlike other people, I never came down from it. I went into their advanced course. I kept going, I kept going. And within about a six to eight week period, I had fully relapsed and didn't even know it. And I found myself in a car for like two hours still calling the same person to clear something up with. And they were calling me like, Hey, it's, everything's good. Just get on with your life. I remember breaking down because I realized that I had fully relapsed and I, it was like I'd accidentally taken a drug that got me back on to my heroin, which was OCD, which was ritualizing, which was behaviors. It took a lot of courage to admit that, but I was so far gone. I had stopped sleeping. I was averaging an hour a night. I had had a somewhat of a falling out with Jay, which had triggered my system really badly because he was my closest ally. And I had gone on what I called a walkabout from working with him. And I got worse and worse and worse. And one day I realized I had to turn back around and take responsibility for, for my relapse. And I went back and worked with Jay again. I still couldn't sleep and I was running a lot to try to unlock my body and hopefully return to just at least somewhat sleeping so that I could truly get back the gains that I'd had and also, you know, on the path to true actual wellness. And I remember one night I ran to Christopher Street Pier in New York City where I'd run all the time and I I lay down for a second. I remember that I was, I, I suddenly felt this new feeling of like, you know, I think maybe I can make it through this and if it doesn't kill me, well, then I'll, I'll have a life. I remember feeling specifically I should just face my worst fears. Like why I've taken this many years. What have I got to lose? 
I remember how petrified I was in my body, but I remember I had this other part of me that I'd connected to just a, just a knowing a guide inside of me, just me, you know, my, my life intelligence. And I remember from that space going, what would it take to actually walk into the shadows, walk into the things that I'm most afraid of, not do the behaviors that are protecting me, you know, just actually go live my life regardless of these thoughts, feelings, sensations, emotions. And the only word that came to me was trust. And I was like, trust in what? You know, I was like, just trust that you'll make it through or you'll die and it'll be fine. It'll be perfect. So to die before I die, I remember going, okay, well, hmm, what would that take? And I I was looking up at the sky. I moved on for a second. I saw a few stars in the sky. And and this story is true. Uh, It's not exaggerated in any way. I looked up at the sky and and something I just thought to myself, well, I wonder if there's any shooting stars in New York City. I thought to myself, well, if I see a shooting star right now, then I'll trust forever and I'll do it. I'll do it. If I see a shooting star right now. And I kind of giggled to myself. Then I thought, no, no, I really mean that. And so I made a really strong wish. (laughs) And then I sat there and I just looked and I was just smiling. And then in about four seconds from south to north up the Hudson River, straight across my eye line, came an undeniable shooting star. In full disbelief, my OCD started to say, no, you didn't see that. And I heard this whisper behind me, did you see that? To someone she was with. And I jumped up like a madman and was like, did you see that? And like shouting for confirmation. And she was like, yeah, it's a shooting star. You know, calm down, crazy New York City person. I stumbled off in complete shock and in that moment knew what had just occurred for me, that I'd gotten some kind of defining commitment in place. And maybe it felt like, you know, it's like, all right, you asked for this thing, you're going you're gonna to do it. I effed up quite a few times here and there, but my commitment to get back on the horse and do it anyway and see screwing up as an opportunity and that trust commitment that I'd made to that moment always stayed on top. And um, that was eight years ago this year. And in those eight years, I have had all of my main successes. I have a family. I own a home. Uh, I've started businesses to help people. I've, I've done more in the last eight years than the rest of my life times four most importantly, my biggest accolade is um, I'm really proud of myself. You deserve every bit of that pride, my friend. You know, sometimes we talk to people and we unlock a specific formula of how they got better. And part of this podcast is to, is to help people get those exact formulas and exact tactics and really delve into the depths of, of what people do. But I think sometimes, particularly with people who are sick because of formulas, like you and I, we're sick because of we can't get out of this black and white thinking that it's of course going to be the anti-formula, i.e. there was no specific thing that you did 
other than trust. And now trust is a really broad definition that, that really set you free. What were you trusting in? Was it yourself? Was it God? Or was it just your ability to sit with uncomfortable emotions without necessarily defaulting back to old protection mechanisms that were making you sick in the first place? Yeah, look, the last thing you said, absolutely. And I'll even make it even more kindergarten. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I knew that what I was going to do was to not engage, react, or live from all of the anxiety uh, and all of the fears and doubts, and I wasn't going to invest my time in that. So what it looked like real time was I would walk along and this crazy, negative, doubtful, fearful triggers would go off in any direction on any subject, and I would say to myself, well, I'm just going to decline not only decline that, but I'm going to decline doing any behavior to relieve it. And so what I was really committing to was feeling shit and feeling really uncomfortable and feeling like maybe I'll die from how anxious I am. I felt really dirty and contaminated because that was my biggest fear that I was dirty and contaminated, uh, wrong, uh, negligent. These were my big trigger words that, you know, I had to stop my whole life to clean and clear myself up before I could live again. Um, and instead of doing that, I would let those alarms, I call them alarms, uh, go off and I would do nothing about them. In fact, I would live like the alarms weren't going off. So in a lot of ways, it was like the ending of a beautiful mind where differently, obviously, because that was schizophrenia, but I would just live like I didn't have those ghosts trying to talk to me, that I would talk to you instead in the last eight years, those first few years were frightful and uncomfortable and there was no quick relief that I was receiving, but I was earning every mile. I was, uh, I was earning every step and I've just slowly rewired myself in, in an eight-year period and a lot of people don't want to hear how long it takes because that sounds terrible, but if I would go back to that man 10 years ago, that 27-year-old man, I'd say, you know, hey, you'll be fine. It's not going to kill you. In fact, here's what your life's going to be like. So just don't do anything that OCD is telling you. Don't follow anything fearful and doubtful and just be okay that you're feeling fear. Be okay that you're feeling anxious. It's okay that you feel, have these terrible thoughts. You don't have to do anything about them. I would have probably done it in three years with that information, with that kind of a surety. Um, but I didn't have that. So it's walking into a, you know, a shadowy door. It's walking through a completely dark forest, not knowing, you know, it's walking into the unknown and eight years seems fast. And uh, so, you know, if there was anything, it's trust means to, to truly accept feeling terrible in the pursuit of your reality, which feels fantastic. Mm. For me, what resonates is through all that, that OCD is an illness that we all have. There isn't a thought that someone with OCD has that other people don't. It's just a bigger spotlight when you have OCD. It's way more recognizable and does way more damage as opposed to a fleeting thought where you're like, did I just think that I wanted to have sex with that guy and I'm a straight male? You know, most of the population goes, meh, maybe, Probably not though. Um, someone with OCD goes, holy shit, that threatens everything I know about myself, my self-worth, what my parents think. 
I now need to disprove that at all costs. And so it's this overlying taking something that's 0.01% of your reality or less than that in terms of its its ability to be true. And then you make it your reality that it's 100% true. And so when we go back to, you know, some mental illnesses like maybe something like depression, you're encouraged to do more and like to, to find that tiger, find that energy to go pursue a life of purpose. I think OCD is a little bit on the other side, which is we want to do less and be okay with it. The moment that we can say maybe, if we're someone that ruminates a lot and we're heavily anxious and we're too active, the moment that we can say maybe, maybe that's true or going like from a body feeling, like literally grunting, the moment we can grunt is the moment that we're on the path to getting better. Because it means that there's a a level of implied acceptance within that reaction. I wanted to ask you something. And if you're not comfortable answering, please say, because I know that this can be triggering, but it's an interesting kind of thing for us to, to dive into. Earlier in the discussion, we spoke about lifting up your energy and how being conscious of your energy is a big thing because you don't want it to be toxic to yourself or other people. You know, if I reflect back on that, in a practical reality setting, 99% of what we do might be registered as language and, and real things. And, you know, energy doesn't really come into it. But for someone like you who has had quite an unhealthy relationship with energy, that might seem... Like I just said, every single thing that we do revolves around energy. How in your, like right now in this moment, when I was talking about the importance of energy and therefore its potential to maybe be negative or contaminated, does that still trigger you now? And if it does, what is your thought process and what do you do about it? And how is that different from before? Well, great question. Well, it didn't trigger me. As you were saying that, I was like, oh, that's cool. It didn't trigger me. It didn't trigger me because it just didn't trigger me. I remember a couple of years into after the shooting star turnaround or the narrow keyhole passage, and I realized that what I had stepped in because to coaching within about two or three weeks, I started to coach intuitively this new way of coaching voice. I've been a voice coach for 20 years, and I started to share with someone I was coaching what I was actually doing myself because I saw that she was struggling with some anxiety issues and she didn't know I was, had even been struggling. And I shared with her some stuff I was up to. And I heard a voice come out of her and she did of herself that she'd never heard. I'd never heard. And she was suddenly present in the room with me. I have followed a behavioral approach to coaching people ever since even coaching people with, with mental health issues in, in intensives and, many, many musicians and singers and, and uh, many people of all walks of life. And in three years into this coaching experience, that I, uh, this new coaching uh, I was doing, it dawned on me that I was literally coaching what I was most afraid of before to sit with someone who uh, really uh, was, was not okay and didn't feel comfortable being themselves or fully in themselves. And um, to help them make a return to themselves as a voice in their life and all of the energy that comes up around that, all of the parts of them that had fear and doubt and potential 
contaminating energy because I would find someone who didn't seem happy contaminated at the time uh, back in the day. And so all of a sudden I realized that what I was most afraid of, I was coaching. Was it still triggering me at times? Absolutely. And I have been triggered thousands and thousands of times. And some days I'm still triggered quite a bit. I often wake up with my alarm system or my, all the triggers going off. I would still say on, on any given day, I am triggered as much as I used to be, but the severity and the length of the experience is so much shorter. So you didn't trigger me that time, but there's, there's a great chance you would have, and I would have done my best to stay in the conversation and be with you in reality regardless. That's a super important point, which is some people think that mental illness, and you said it before, um, is something you cut out of you. Whereas if we come from a lens of we are all mentally ill and actually truly believe that, and the only thing that separates us and someone who's currently hospitalized with schizophrenia is intensity and duration. So if you look at a map, it's the up and down axis and the left to right axis. That for me is a really relieving feeling because it's not that we need to stop something entirely. That for me feels like a mountainous goal. It's like that is such a big effort. If all we're trying to do is squash the frequencies to fit inside the parameters that we can deal with, and that's, you know, those parameters are subjective to every single person, then that's all we need to do. If we can shorten the duration and lower the intensity, of the experiences we feel so that we can benefit from all of the good things that some of these experiences bring. Like my OCD is the reason that I killed it at Microsoft. The problem is, is that I let the parameters flick above the line, both in height and width, that it was also destroying me. And so it's very much around, you know, the sa- your reality is, might be similar, but your relationship to it has changed. And the intensity and the duration has become just put inside a a way that is now day-to-day manageable. So I'm really, really happy to to hear that that is where you have landed. That is also where I have landed. And now you use this every day to teach people how they use music as a means of expression. I love the term that you use with your Braves business on the songwriter's journey where you help people rekindle their love and their connection to music. And you say that it's expression without rules. And I think that's really important. And particularly, you know, in the corporate space where people are concerned with losing their jobs more than they are, how they be their authentic self. And our ability to communicate has deteriorated, even at a leadership level where people have lost the ability to be vulnerable. And so, how how does your new work with what you do in Braves and, and Brothers Corin, how is that influenced by your learnings in your personal life? Wow, yeah, hugely. I, I had no idea we would, my brother and I would create a journey that would take someone up from inception to celebrating themselves using music as the medium. But it, it, it wrote itself. Um, we'd come out to LA and we were writing for big pop stars and and as much as we still love to write for you know people in the music industry, and we do as Braves in Los Angeles, we we felt that the the classic way to write for someone you know on radio is quite vapid and 
and removed. And we were like, well, we want to, we want to paint with someone's colors. We want to, we want to be in the room with a human being. And what is it, what is it that they need to express? Like who are, who is that person that makes them distinctly them? Like that's old school music making, like all the big legends of music history, you know, wrote from their voice. They didn't just slap on a pop song. So we, we love pop music, but we wanted, we wanted to write with someone's voice. So we, we kind of came up with this idea to take someone along 10 stages to really see themselves in a creative mirror with new brothers that adopt new brothers and would make the passage with them, set sail into the unknown and come back with a handful of songs that really represent them and tell their story. From our first client, she was 17 and she ended up winning the John Legend songwriting competition at South by that year. That was not what we set out to do. We didn't set out to, for accolades. We, we set out to take someone on an experience. And now we're 75 to 80 people in. We're on our second group. Uh, we've written hundreds upon hundreds of songs and record deals for people and accolades and Spotify charts and all that kind of stuff. But what we've discovered is that most people don't feel seen and don't feel heard and don't feel understood, and they haven't been able to share themselves. And music is that universal platform. Songs are capsules. Songs are these like frameworks to be able to imbue yourself in. And we start to, along the journey, we study people's musical through lines and we, we get to know them like even, even their best friends wouldn't know them. And we also do the same in their, uh, with their musical side. We call it musical cosmology. And then we jump into inventing these songs. And my big role is to really bring them into, into a new relationship to their own mind at home in their own body so that when they return to themselves as a whole body instrument, I call it whole body instrument coaching, that they are not only happy to be inside themselves, but they're okay or what I like to call they're comfortably uncomfortable. And when someone is truly uncomfortable at being uncomfortable, they're free to use all of their expression. There's no doors closed. There's no colors they can't use. There's no emotions that they don't allow themselves to experience or express. They're free to be radically themselves again. And radical expression sounds unbelievable in a song on a microphone. So it's really allowing someone to return. And these are people from, you know, a 60-year-old, retired woman from Canada who always dreamed of singing or this is a young person that wants to take a crack at the music industry or this is someone who's reclaiming music again for the first time after 10 years of being in the corporate space and wants to return to it on the weekends. It really, we don't discriminate because music was always meant to be for everyone. I think the most profound thing for me is that I get to do my behavioral coaching inside this framework and we also get to speak and work with businesses and corporations around the world on helping them be better radical creatives together in any way because we're all walking around as instruments whether we're singing or whether we're speaking it's always an opportunity to be a powerful instrument in the world that you uh that you express in yeah and how awesome that you get to do that with your best friend and your brother Isaac who I had the very fortunate privilege of of meeting and hanging out with in in um California I was actually at their uh, how would you describe their house it's just this timber love shack in the middle of the forest in Ojai as the sun was setting we were drinking 
a couple of beers and having dinner with your extended family and friends. Isaac is married to the beautiful Sophie Ward. And it was such a great night. And it was more importantly, it was so good to see you and your brother who you listen to a single song by you guys and you can feel down to a cellular level the chemistry you guys have. It is absolutely amazing. And I'm sure Isaac has been a huge part of, of your journey. Even speaking to him, he mentioned that he as a supporter has watched you go through this and sometimes he's probably felt worse than you because he's felt powerless and, and helpless, but he's maintained that rock-like presence that has been a stable force for you your entire life. Absolutely. Uh, you know, alongside Jay, uh, I couldn't have done what I, I couldn't have made this passage or this, you know, this turnaround without my brother Isaac, without my now wife, Ashley, and without, you know, family and support. I didn't lean on friends as much as some other people may need to. I, I, I had a strong enough support that was close in my family around me. And it's a really, really, really big mission of mine with a foundation that I'll be starting into early 2019 here to, to really help provide pathways for people that don't have the support, the love, the care, and the, the, the means to get help when they actually are ready for it, which is the resources and the, actually the ears and the hands and the, the hearts to actually assist someone going from about to lose their life or just being at the bottom in their life to someone who's not only having an amazing life but being extremely impactful to all of these people around them. Because uh, you, what you notice with people that make a true turnaround is that they don't just go and live a nice life. They, they go and make a big impact. A lot of people need help. And a lot of people need help so they can help many others. So it's really near and dear to my heart that people get the kind of love and support when they're ready to truly give it a crack. I would personally like to thank your friends and family, including your amazing wife, Ash, for being such a support here to you because we do need you here. You're a great presence and, and doing wonderful things. It's been my absolute pleasure and honor talking to you over the last hour and just getting getting a feel for the similarities we've lived and, and live with so many others. Uh, and I can't wait to talk more and continue our work together, Torald. Thanks so much. Uh, I feel the same about you and I'm, I'm really honored you had me as, as a guest. I'm so proud of the work you're doing as well, Mitch. So uh, it'll continue and very, very happily reachable in multiple ways and, and I love hearing from people and love being a support and uh, my offer of help always stands to anyone. Well, this won't be the last we hear from you and until next time, be well, my friend. Thank you and, you, and so is you. Thank you. <laughs>